Truth Espresso, episode 86. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hey there, friends. Welcome to Truth Espresso. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, coming at you with more superhero goodness. And in this episode, we are going to cover the Green Lantern. Now, the purpose of these episodes is not just to stoke our superhero fandom, but really to understand Jesus more as we look at some of our favorite and not-so-favorite superheroes. Now, raise your hand if your favorite superhero of all time is the Green Lantern. Strange, I don't see any hands raised up. (laughs) Well, of course, obviously, because I can't see your hand in a pre-recorded podcast episode. But I seriously am not expecting that the Green Lantern is going to be at the top of the list of favorite superheroes of all time uh, by a majority of people who follow superheroes. He seems to be one of those minor ones, one of those fringe ones in the DC universe. But we are going to look at the Green Lantern, and maybe you'll appreciate the Green Lantern a little bit more as we look at just who is the Green Lantern, or even a Green Lantern, and compare in church history to see if Jesus is like the Green Lantern, as someone in history in some way kind of proposed, or not. And now if you're just tuning in because maybe the Green Lantern just so happens to be your favorite superhero, you're one of those really odd people who might say the Green Lantern is your favorite superhero and other people might say, who? (laughs) And then perhaps you searched for the Green Lantern and you found this episode and you were curious, like, wait a minute, is Jesus like the Green Lantern? What in the world is this weirdo talking about? And you decided to tune in. And so if you're just tuning in to this episode, I would encourage you to listen a few episodes back, back to the question, is Jesus like Superman? So that you can get a full-orbed understanding as we're going through church history, somewhat chronologically, to see if Jesus is like different superheroes. Now, each of these superheroes represents a particularly idea about Jesus in history that somewhat conforms to the way we could understand the superhero. And as the Green Lantern is from the DC Comics universe, if you do listen to other episodes of of Truth Espresso in this series, you will recognize that this is not all about DC Comics. We're doing DC and Marvel here. We don't have a particular bias one way toward another, especially as we're looking for superhero examples that represent different ideas about Jesus in church history. And so let's continue on talking about the Green Lantern. 
So just who is the Green Lantern as one of the DC Comics superheroes? Well, you may not know this if you're a young person, but the Green Lantern was first introduced into DC Comics in 1940. Now, of course, I am definitely nowhere near old enough to say, yeah, I remember when that first issue came out. (laughs) Yeah, that was quite a while before I was born. Uh, Twice my life back, in fact. But just who is the Green Lantern, or rather the appropriate question we should ask in regard to the Green Lantern is to ask, who is a Green Lantern? Because when it comes to understanding the Green Lantern, we need to understand that there isn't just one Green Lantern. The Green Lanterns, plural are an intergalactic class of beings. If we want to think of the Green Lantern or someone holding this position as a Green Lantern as being in divinity, this will lead us to the test, is Jesus like the Green Lantern or a Green Lantern? So, the Green Lanterns, or rather the Green Lantern Corps, might be thought of as this comic version of the Godhead. And there have been several Green Lanterns or members of this class of heroes over the years. If we look at DC Comics and how they have released different issues and had different people fulfill the role of a Green Lantern, we see that Alan Scott was the first Green Lantern introduced in 1940. And then eventually, a newcomer, a test pilot by the name of Hal Jordan, became a Green Lantern in 1959. And also, a one of the Green Lanterns around the same time was also a guy by the name of Thal Sinestro, first mentioned in 1961. Now, there is also another Green Lantern, Guy Gardner, first introduced in 1968. And then in 1971, there is a Green Lantern by the name of John Stewart. And now Alan Scott, the first Green Lantern, also had a daughter that became a Green Lantern in 1983 by the name of Jennifer Lynn Hayden. Another Green Lantern was Kyle Rayner in 1994. Yet another one, Simon Boz in 2012. And then a young Jessica Cruz in 2014. And let's not forget a Kelly Quintella in 2019. That's pretty recent as of the recording of this episode. And so, as I have listed these names, you can see any number of individuals could be a Green Lantern. And, technically speaking, according to the Green Lantern Corps, we'd understand that this list is by no means exhaustive. These are really human beings who have held the mantle or the office or the position as one of the Green Lantern Corps. So any number of individuals could be a Green Lantern, and in fact, there are a total of 7,200 members to this intergalactic superhero police force. And I will put a link to the show notes from DCUniverseInfinite.com that explains that. 
In fact, the Green Lanterns were originally all some form of superior alien race until Hal Jordan became the first human Green Lantern. And now, maybe or maybe you don't know that there was, in fact, a live-action movie put on by DC Comics in the year 2011, so about 10 years ago, and this Green Lantern film in 2011 starred Ryan Reynolds as he played the role of Hal Jordan, the first human Green Lantern. So, Abin Sur, according to the plot of the movie, was the Green Lantern of Sector 2814, who defeated the enemy Parallax, but was wounded and near death, and he crashed on Earth to face his imminent death. But his power ring, that would give him the Green Lantern powers via his role in the Green Lantern Corps, selected Hal Jordan, the human test pilot, to be his successor. The ring, the power ring that Abensur possessed, brought Hal to meet Abensur to take possession of the ring and to recite the Green Lantern Oath before Abensur died and left this human successor to be the new Green Lantern for Sector 2814, which was the portion of the universe that covered the Earth and some surrounding areas. Because the 7,200 members of the Green Lantern Corps basically partitioned the universe into these sectors, and each singular Green Lantern was in charge of fighting evil in one of these sectors. So obviously, with the size of the universe as it is, we know that 7,200 may seem like a lot, but I would imagine that the sector of the universe would be a pretty large part of the universe for over which a Green Lantern would have to be in charge of policing away evil. And now, not to give away too much of the plot of the Green Lantern 2011 film, just in case you wanted to watch it or not, but Hal Jordan now encountered, as a Green Lantern, he had to fight the enemy Parallax in the stead of Abinsur. And at the end of this Green Lantern film, as Hal Jordan was successful in fighting away Parallax and defeating him, the Green Lantern Corps praised him and officially adopted him into their force. And now Hal Jordan would be officially in charge of protecting Sector 2814. So now the Earth and potentially other planets would have Hal Jordan as their Green Lantern to fight away bad guys that would pose a threat that only a Green Lantern would be capable of staving off. Now, this 2011 Green Lantern film did not have much success. It became very much a flop with a plethora of negative reviews, so much so that what was going to be a sequel that was planned in the works was canceled. The movie barely grossed revenue above its costs, and so if you're an investor or a producer, 
You don't want to risk losing money on something that proved not to be very successful. And so even if a sequel would have been much better planned out or better than the original, the stigma of having a bad first movie would probably not be a good idea to make a sequel with. It would be quite the risk. And so there is a basic overview of Green Lantern. The position of Green Lantern, and that is the Green Lantern comic, but the Green Lantern is not unique. Each Green Lantern is a Green Lantern in a large group of these superheroes, and they have their superpowers, but not intrinsic to themselves. Their superpowers come from a ring that has power, and the ring is what gives the person the power, and it is controlled by willpower. And so, although a Green Lantern would be pretty divine with the things he could do, it is not because of who this person is. It is because of how this person has obtained the ring and how this person has been adopted into the Green Lantern core and allowed to wield this ring and to inherit it. And so, when it comes to church history, this brings us to the error of adoptionism. Now, what is adoptionism, or as it has also been referred to in history as dynamic monarchianism? So, what is monarchianism? Well, there were two primary forms of monarchianism in early church history in the second and third centuries in particular— Monarchianism essentially is a form of Unitarianism, the idea that there's only one person of God, the Father. And so, dynamic monarchianism is the idea that although God the Father is supreme, the Son is inferior, and the Son became the Son at some point in time, so you might include Arianism as a form of dynamic monarchianism, but there's also adoptionism that was primarily what was referred to as dynamic monarchianism. Dynamic as in the monarchianism can have its own changes. And there's also modalistic monarchianism, which we covered when we talked about Sibelianism, in that the one person of God, like the Ant-Man, takes on the three forms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, monarchianism, if you think of monarch, we're referring to the one God as the king, the one person of God, who's father of creation. And then, how do we think of Jesus or Holy Spirit? We still have to think of them in terms of one person of God. That's monarchianism. And so, adoptionism, as I'll explain, is dynamic monarchianism. So, let's look at adoptionism by understanding how it was taught by its early adherents. So, first of all, we start with a guy by the name of Theodotus of Byzantium. Now, this guy was a tanner from the late 2nd century, so by profession, he was a tanner. So, we understand that not all theologians got their master's degree in theology from some kind of college. Some people come up with interesting theological ideas when they have another profession. 
And so in this case, a tanner from the eastern area of Byzantium becomes an influential theologian, and this by the name of Theodotus. And now Theodotus was a Valentinian Gnostic, according to encyclopedia sources. And so if you remember when I talked about Gnosticism from the Docetic point of view, that Jesus could not in any way be human because that would taint his divinity and his virtue, well, Valentinian Gnosticism allowed for the idea of humans to escape and become divine. And so as a Valentinian Gnostic, Theodotus brought his Gnostic ideas into Christianity, and he taught that Jesus was a virgin-born man. So, ding, we have a plus from that perspective. Unlike the Ebionites, Theodotus believed in the virgin birth. But he believed that Jesus, as just a virgin-born man, through his pious life and up to his baptism, he got God's attention and favor to make him the Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit, in the thinking of Theodotus, who descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove, was actually the Christ essence of God coming down to indwell him. And so, as Jesus received the Christ essence from God, this empowerment, this granted Jesus the power to perform miracles during his earthly ministry. And as Jesus died as the pious Christ figure, he was raised from the dead and he became divine. And now Theodotus brought his ideas from the Byzantine East to Rome in the West. And this caused quite a stir because this seemed to be an infiltration of Gnostic ideas into Christian orthodoxy. And eventually, Victor, who was Bishop of Rome at the time, condemned this as an error in the area of Rome toward the end of the second century. Now, adoptionism did not die at this time. There were other adherents of adoptionism, and and I dare say that there have been people even to this day, of course, as with all of the Christological heresies who continue them. So, there are adoptionists today. But another figure in history is Paul of Samosata, who was bishop in Antioch from 260 to 268. So, he came about 70 years after Theodotus was condemned as a heretic. So, according to Paul of Samosata and his version of adoptionism, The Logos is God's wisdom, but this Logos is something that is very much attached to God and part of God. So, God essentially indwelt the human Jesus starting at his baptism via his inseparable Logos. So, Jesus was essentially schizophrenic with God indwelling him after his baptism. And so, Jesus wasn't the Logos as a person. The Logos was something to do with God's wisdom indwelling Jesus and basically acting through him. So now, there are similarities here with the modalist oneness view of the Incarnation in which God the Father indwelt the human Jesus during his earthly ministry. 
It is also similar to a Trinitarian-based error that we will actually discuss in the next episode in this series, which will be Nestorianism. So the next episode, we're going to talk about the schizophrenic Jesus and the heir of Nestorianism as we look at answering the question, is Jesus like the Incredible Hulk? Now, back to adoptionism, like the Ebionites and the Socinians and Oneness, Paul of Samosata argued that the pre-existence of the Son of God as a person was only as a plan or idea in God's mind. Now, at a council in Antioch in 268, this is not uh, an ecumenical council like the first one at Nicaea in 325. This was a local one in Antioch, dealing with a bishop in Antioch, teaching weird things, and so you have elders assembling in Antioch in 268 to figure out what to do with Paul of Samosata. So at this council in Antioch in 268, Paul was removed from his position, but he continued to contest and to claim that he wasn't legitimately removed and that he could still act as bishop in Antioch. Now, Paul of Samosata had some friends in high places, namely Zenobia, the queen of Palmyra in Syria, who protected him so that he could still act as a bishop of Antioch, much to the chagrin of the Antiochian Christians. And yet, by 272, the Roman Emperor Aurelian beat Queen Zenobia in battle and ousted her. Now, this removed Paul's legal protection, and so once this happened and the new emperor of the Roman Empire had more control over Antioch, the Antiochian Christians then pleaded their case to Emperor Aurelian that Paul should be dismissed, and the emperor complied. Now, this pagan emperor didn't really care much about the doctrinal issues that they raised, so he just figured, yeah, if this is going to prevent a stir from my subjects, I'll, I'll grant them their request. I don't care much about this, but as much as I do peace in my empire... Now, according to what is written against Paul of Samosata, he seemed to take his influence to the heights of living a little extravagantly, and bishops at this time expected the position to be more ascetic. Now, one of Paul's disciples was a guy named Lucian of Antioch. Now, if you listen to earlier episodes, you just might remember that name. Now, Lucian of Antioch was someone who influenced Arius with his ideas. So, we see here a shift of ideas or a a syncretism of ideas from an adoptionist heretic down to Arius and the Arian heresy. Paul of Samosata described his understanding of Jesus with the indwelling Logos of God with the term homoousios. The local council in 268 that had him removed condemned his teachings and the term homoousios, 
Remember from the Ant-Man episode, the Sibelian modalists also use the term homoousios to describe their view of Jesus. So if you remember when we talked about Arianism and the episodes about Is Jesus Like Thor?, The Orthodox position, led by Alexander of Alexandria and eventually spearheaded by Athanasius of Alexandria, used the term homoousios to describe the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And the Arian side argued that the term was recognized as the heresy of modalism. So you can see why the Orthodox position had a hard time making the case that the Father and the Son are distinct in person, but of the same substance of the one God. This might also explain another angle of how the Semi-Arians, for decades after Nicaea, were able to have such influence. Also remember that Eusebius of Caesarea, who was Orthodox himself, had a hard time with the term homoousios at the Council of Nicaea, and he was the one who offered the term homoousios, similar substance. And then the Arians latched on to that. The Orthodox party could not accept homoousios because it could be Arianized, and the semi-Arians ran with that against the Nicene doctrine. And Eusebius of Caesarea, although he signed the Nicene Creed and he was orthodox in his beliefs, he just struggled with that term because of the stigma that it had. And eventually, he did write that he reconsidered the creed and studied it, and then he accepted the term homoousios as long as it could be understood with what the Nicene Doctrine was claiming and that it could not be confused with Sabellianism or adoptionism. But now, let's just think about adoptionism. If you're a Trinitarian Christian, adoptionism definitely sounds strange, but let's just humor it a little bit. Without our disposition to see things through the lens of the Trinity and the Incarnation, we could easily see how these ideas could make sense from reading the Bible chronologically. Because consider this, in the Old Testament, we actually don't see a whole lot about the deity of Messiah. Now, of course, we have some verses that do prove it, but there are a lot of apologists who deny the deity of Christ who would make the claim that the Old Testament doesn't teach it. I mean, of course, there isn't a whole lot that does teach it, and so from an adoptionist perspective, that could make sense. And in the Gospels, we see the ministry of Jesus begin at his baptism, where the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and the voice of the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And an adoptionist basically inserts the word now there, in whom I am now well pleased. And I am pleased to offer this person to you as my unique Son. And we see that Jesus' first miracle is not long after that. His disciples confess him as the Christ. And so, you know, he's not 
really called the Christ by people until during his ministry, and he isn't performing miracles until after his baptism. Unlike what the Gnostics in the Gnostic Gospels would say that as a kid he made clay birds and turned a a rival in a kid game into a statue and stuff like that. But, you know, we can see by looking at the scriptures as an adoptionist, things might seem to make a little sense, at least according to the chronology of the writings. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of proof in the gospel accounts that Jesus is divine, although he is the amazing and highly exalted Christ who performs miracles. And then at his resurrection, he can walk through walls, he can appear in the midst of people, and then he ascends up into heaven. And then as we read the epistles, we could see that the epistles treat him with more reverence as a divine figure. The disciples call upon his name as he is in heaven. Uh, He's the object of prayer, and Paul ascribes worship to him in Philippians 2. And Revelation chapter 5 has every creature worshiping God and the Lamb. And so, why not adoptionism? Why shouldn't we think of Jesus like the Green Lantern? So, let's answer some questions to figure out why we should reject adoptionism, even if it seems convincing as we look at scriptures in chronological order. Let's ask the question, did man become the Son of God, or did the Son of God become man? So, if we look at John 1.1, we see that in the beginning was the Word, or the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Or, in the Greek, ein halogos, kai halogos ein proston theon, kai theos ein halogos. And what that is saying is that the word or the logos was divine, was theos. And an adoptionist could say, we'll see the logos is the wisdom and and in some way the divinity, the non-personal divinity of God. But in John 1.14, we see that the logos became flesh, kaihalagos sarxagenita. And the word agenita doesn't mean changed into, because we see a form of that word in John 8.58, where Jesus, in his earthly ministry, tells the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. Prin Abraham genesta ego I me. And that Abraham didn't change into a human, he became, he began as a human. So, in John 1.14, the Logos became flesh, sarx agenita, and so the flesh originated, but the Logos pre-existed as a person. And so, did man become the Son of God, or did the Son of God become man? So, we see that adoptionism reverses orthodoxy in this sense. But now, let's ask the question, did the Son pre-exist his humanity as the Son? Was the Son sent to earth, or was the Son adopted from earth? So, let's look at some verses here. In Hebrews 2.14, and as I have argued before, 
Hebrews chapter 1 argues for the deity of Jesus Christ, and Hebrews chapter 2 argues for the humanity of Jesus Christ as a matter of incarnation. And Hebrews 2.14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, or partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So here this is clearly incarnation, that there is a purpose in the Son, and he's identified as the Son in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. So the Son decided to partake of flesh and blood, or humanity, the human nature, that through death he might destroy him. So the Son is not a human who lived a pious life, and by doing that, received recognition from God and became the Son. No, the Son was sent, not adopted. The Son pre-existed, and the Son himself took on a human nature. A human Jesus did not take on divinity. The Son took on a human nature and was then Jesus of Nazareth. And we have 1 John 4, 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. So God sent the Son into the world. God did not adopt the Son from the world. The love of God is expressed in that Jesus is the Son sent into the world in flesh, in a human nature, to fulfill the love of God. So, adoptionism is completely reversed from this. And now let's look at adoptionism in that we could ask the question, is adoptionism truly monotheistic as it seems like it tries to claim? Because if we look at Isaiah 43 and verse 10, which is also the verse where Jehovah's Witnesses get their name, it says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, or Yahweh, or in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah. And my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, yes, one God, neither shall there be after me. Adoptionism essentially has God forming another God after him. If Jesus is adopted into the Godhead, then Jesus is being formed as a God, which is an explicit contradiction to Isaiah 43.10, which says that there is no God formed after Yahweh God. And we have Isaiah 45, 21 through 23. Now, Isaiah 40 through 48 are the chapters dealing with idolatry and God arguing his divinity against the false gods, the idols that the Israelites have adopted. And in Isaiah 45, 21 through 23, Yahweh God says, Tell ye and bring them near, referring to the idols, bring the idols near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? 
Have not I the Lord, Yahweh? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear." So, in the context of worship of deity against idolatry, this is what God says. He says that there is no other God, and that everyone should bow and swear to him alone. But yet we see Jesus, in Philippians 2, receiving this exact worship to the glory of God the Father. So, if we don't maintain the Trinity, that Jesus is homoousios with the Father in the same substance, not adopted, but eternally coexistent with God, because one of the attributes of divinity is eternality, and if worship is only due to the one God, then a human who is adopted as divinity cannot receive this same worship, else that be idolatry. And now, what is the primary problem with adoptionism? What is the elephant of the room that we need to address? We can technically discuss things about pre-existence and the divinity of Jesus, but the primary problem with adoptionism is, of course, that it denies substitutionary atonement. As all the Christological heresies do, they provide a roadblock to the essential Christian doctrine of substitution institutionary atonement upon which all theology and indeed, as I argue, all reality must proceed. Adoptionism denies substitutionary atonement in a sense because it denies the problem of sin. If we look at Romans 5.12, we see that the Apostle Paul says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. As anyone who is progeny of Adam receives the sin nature, and so if you are a human being born into this world— If you are only human as the progeny of Adam, then you are a sinner. You cannot live a perfectly pious life that would grab God's attention and say, Hey, you are worthy of taking the green lantern ring. You are worthy of becoming God with me. No, no mere human being is capable of that. The problem of sin demands that the Savior, as Athanasius argued, must be God incarnate. The only way you can have a Savior is someone who must be God himself, coming to earth, taking on a human nature, fulfilling the law of God perfectly as only God can do, and then thereby becoming a substitutionary atonement. So we read Hebrews 2.14 that says that just as the children, the humans, are partakers of flesh and blood, so the Son likewise partook of the same for the purpose of destroying death and the devil. And then two chapters later in Hebrews 4.15 we see, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we 
we are, yet without sin. So we see that to have a high priest who could be tempted without sin demands that he also be the incarnate son. So the reason he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin, is precisely because, as the writer to the Hebrews argued, that he had to take on the nature of humanity, had to take on the seed of Abraham, not the nature of angels. And so adoptionism is definitely an affront to substitutionary atonement. We need to rid ourselves in Christianity of this idea that humans could live perfectly before God. I don't care if you believe that one human happened to do that, because if one man as man alone could manage to live a pious enough life for God to adopt him, why haven't others done this before or since? Because all the prophets before Jesus had their flaws. Jonah ran away from his mission in Nineveh and was swallowed by a whale. Noah, as a prophet during the time of the flood, had the problem when he got drunk later on. Moses disobeyed God and struck the rock, and God didn't allow him to enter the promised land and only to see it before his death. Every prophet, Isaiah, even Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips in Isaiah 6. There was no sinless prophet before Jesus. So what makes Jesus special if he's just a man? How did he manage to do it? And why haven't we had any since? And of course, I would argue against religions like Islam or even Roman Catholicism that there is no sinless human being apart from Jesus Christ. And the reason for that, as the early church writers argued, and as the only way of salvation, as Athanasius argued, the only way that we could be saved is by God becoming man, not by man becoming God. And so, because adoptionism definitely denies substitutionary atonement, Among other problems, we must reject it. Is Jesus like the Green Lantern? Well, I hope Christians can answer that question with a simple two-letter word, no. Thank you for waking up with Truthspresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 